Welcome to Sleepy Time Travels. Who reads philosophy books? Not many. Maybe that's why George Santayana hid the medicine in sweeter wrappers. His The Last Puritan is an example. This week's episode is a selection from another venerable literary form, the dialogue. It reminds me of the show from decades ago, where a group of famous people from history were in a Sunday morning talk show-like format. In his book, Dialogues in Limbo, Santayana features a pilgrim from our time who has found his way into a place where he can have some pretty serious discussions with Socrates and others. My name is Russell Stamets. Some people like to fall asleep to the audiobooks I narrate. The topics of the books I choose to narrate and produce range from folk tales to essays on exploration, Eastern mysticism, or philosophical works like this one. If you'd like to hear more of the books I sample on the podcast, or check out the rest of my catalog, search Russell Stamets on Audible or iTunes. I'll include links to the audiobooks and the Kindle and print editions in the episode description. If this is something you enjoy listening to, besides buying the books, you can support me by rating the podcast, following, or subscribing. Now, it's time to get comfortable, settle back, relax, and listen. Socrates Whom do I see approaching with downcast looks? My friend, the stranger? Have you come today to remain with us for good, or is this but another brief excursion into the realm of sanity? from which you hope to return presently to your crazy world. The Stranger I can hardly hope, Socrates, to dwell in your distinguished company after I am dead. Therefore, I take every opportunity to visit you now while I may. Socrates Tis at rare intervals. Probably you think you are better employed in the sunlight or can see better in it. My own eyes are more like the owls than the eagles, and I can see farther in this twilight than ever in the glare of the Athenian day. I was always an ignorant man, depending on my disciples for sure first principle, and for irrefragable facts, knowledge of which they seemed to possess by nature, although my dullness or some divine impediment, had prevented me from discovering all those certain truths when I was of their age. That old blindness of mine is now redoubled in respect to the living world. For whereas liberation from the body has opened to me a large prospect towards the past and the future, it has cut off my old channels of dubious communication with material things, and it is only the truth of them before they arise or after they perish that lies spread out before me for direct inspection. In their transit through existence, they are eclipsed in these heavens, and I can know them only by report of travelers such as you from the Antipodes. My information about your affairs is accordingly most incomplete, and, worst of all, is brought to me by unphilosophical messengers. For only whimsical and ill-bred spirits now seem to reach this place. I have heard, for instance, of an obscure oracle which you may be able to interpret for me. The god must have delivered it in some barbarous tongue, and perhaps in verse, which has been ill-translated. But the monumental inscription which my informant had seen seems to have read as follows. Right government rests on the will of the governed. The Stranger We need no god and no oracle to tell us that. It is a commonplace and the foundation of all our politics. Socrates I rejoice to hear it 
for if the maxim is always on your lips, you will probably be able to tell me what it means. Does right government, I pray, mean good government? And does the will of the governed mean their wishes for the moment, or their habitual ruling passion, or their true and ultimate good? The Stranger I am hardly able, Socrates, to answer all these questions at once. And even if you put them to me singly, I am afraid I should not be ready with glib replies, unless it were half in jest, without expecting that they would bear inspection. Nowadays, I place less reliance than ever upon exact words, and although you will rebuke me for it, I feel that there is a current in things that carries all our thoughts away, not only that oracle, as you call it, about right government, but also any wiser maxims that we might substitute for it. In my youth, my ears were deafened by a variety of shrill cries, liberty, progress, science, culture, but time, and especially this last revolution in our affairs, has taught me how little it mattered what we thought the cries meant, since events in the long run will falsify any policy and render obsolete any conviction. And the only significance I can still attach to those watchwords is no definable significance, but only a vague association of each of them with some shift in our manners or politics or industrial arts. Why should I trouble you in your immortal serenity with these squabbles and delusions of living men? It was not to talk about them that I came into your presence, but rather to escape from them into your surer wisdom. Socrates, you will not escape them, my friend, unless you learn to understand them. You know well that my wisdom lies only in asking questions. What you come to take refuge in is not my philosophy, but yours. What you think I may help you to discover and to put into words. And if this occurs, it will not be wonderful that you should approve the answers to my questions, since it is you who will give them. But today you may be disappointed, for there is evidently something new on your conscience, and you may not know your own mind. Formerly, if I inquired of you concerning the affairs of your provisional world, you stinted your answers and changed the subject. Apparently, you hardly followed the events of your own day more closely than we can follow them here by report, as if they were things long past, and you seemed to feel an indifference, premature on your part, to mortal things, and an early immunity from care. But now the wasp of actuality seems to have stung you, and you bring with you a heavier scent of earth and of new-shed blood. I am not surprised at your distress. Under the blue sky, society is like Zeus, who is lord over it. It expresses its will less by law-giving, than by nods and thunderbolts. Strange that in the light of day there should be so much blindness. And here where Pluto, in comparative darkness, rules over far vaster multitudes, there should be never a murmur, nor a rumble, but a just estimation of all things, and a place for all. Let us not miss the opportunity, then, while we are together, I, to hear your tragedy, and you, to ponder its moral. The Stranger Our tragedy is an old one, of which you drew the moral long ago. It is the tragedy of those who do as they wish, but do not get what they want. It is the tragedy of self-government. Socrates it would be a terrible tragedy, indeed, if such an excellent thing as self-government came to a bad end. But I cannot credit the report. 
because a people who had learned self-government would be a race of philosophers, each governing himself and himself only, and inwardly safe from any real misfortune. I rejoice that the Republic of the Living, contrary to expectation, should have become in my absence so similar to this happy commonwealth of immortals, where no spirit molests any other or needs another's support. The Stranger Irony, Socrates, cannot shame the facts which have an irony of their own. Of course, by self-government, we do not mean the government of self. We mean that people collectively issue the orders which they must obey individually. Socrates, how surprising am I to understand that under self-government, as you practice it, no man governs himself in anything, but that each is governed in everything by all the others. The Stranger, it would come to that if our system were perfect. Socrates, then your democracy, which I suppose intends to express the autonomy of the individual, in effect entirely abolishes that autonomy. The stranger, yes, but without violence. There is an unwritten and plastic law in the modern world, which we call fashion and the more thoroughly we conform to it, the freer and the finer we think ourselves. Fashion without magistrates rules by the will of the governed. It is pleasant to go where everybody goes, to think what everybody thinks, and to dance as everybody dances. In fashion, I might find an answer to that nest full of questions which you were putting just now. For the will of the governed, by which fashion rules, on the surface is a passing caprice. But this caprice is grafted upon an habitual passion, namely on a rooted instinct to lead, to follow, or somehow to lose oneself in a common enjoyment of life with one's fellow men, especially those of one's age and class, and finally, this ruling passion leads to the ultimate good, as the followers of fashion conceive it, for they think the ultimate good is life itself, in its pervasive immediacy, made as intense and vigorous as possible by continual novelty and emulation. Not for the sake of any prize or result, but just for the running's sake. Thus, fashion governs us with our hearty consent, not only in our manners and appointments, but in our religion and science, and above all in our politics. There is nothing that recommends any opinion or custom to us more than to hear that it is the latest thing, that everybody is adopting it, and that it is universal nowadays in the leading circles. Even our philosophers have their ear to the ground, tell us with unction how the world is marching. Their conscience would reproach them, and they would wish to hang themselves if they were not on the winning side. The event, they say, is always the judgment of God. Socrates. Long ago, Heraclitus said so, but the sentence which divine justice passes on each new birth is severe. It is always death. The stranger. Yes, but a natural death, followed by some natural resurrection. Why be afraid of revolution? Socrates. Why indeed, if you mean the revolution of the heavens or of the seasons, or the descent of each generation in its turn to the grave? That which I fear, no longer for myself but for you, is that you should not govern yourselves well while you live and should thereby condemn yourselves here to an eternal bitterness. Are all fashions equally good? Are all transitions equally happy? Are youth and age in their appointed round always beautiful and perfect? 
Have you learned how to live? Do you know how to die? If you neglected these questions, your self-government would not be an art, but a blind experiment. Art, which is action guided by knowledge, is the principle of benefit, and without art, the freer man is the more miserable he must become. The Stranger Government among us is certainly not an art, but a fatality. In so far as it is not a matter of mere tradition and routine, it results from contrary purposes and parties pulling against each other in a tug of war, for the sake of office or of some immediate reform or relief. Whether the effects of government are beneficent in the end, nobody can tell because nobody can foresee the infinite radiations of those effects in the future. Nor even in the present have we any clear or authoritative notion of the uses of government, or any criterion by which to measure the various goods that various people might regard as ultimate, such as health, friendship, knowledge, laughter, or heaven. And so far as government among us from regarding any ultimate good, that many are inclined to look in other directions for true guidance in their allegiances and for the means to happiness, and they regard politics with aversion and politicians with contempt, thinking that government, at best, is a nuisance. Socrates, and is that, pray, your own opinion? The stranger, I will not venture to make it mine before you have examined it. I remember the fate of all those innocents who have fallen into your hands and have had to eat their own words. Socrates, very well. Let me ask you this other question instead. If government is not an art, how can you or your friends ever determine what measures to approve or what magistrates to raise to office? The Stranger, nothing easier. We support such as express our ideas or share our desires. Socrates, and your ideas and desires are formed on what principle? The stranger, on none, of course. They come to us gaily, like song to the lark. If we had to find a reason for liking what we like, we should never be able to like anything. Socrates, your politics is a matter of taste? The stranger, certainly, but taste is sometimes modified by indigestion. Socrates, I see. You simply obey your whim or inclination until perhaps you sicken and are in danger of death. Your rulers are physicians summoned in your extremity. You have no trainers in your youth. We Greeks held our trainers and legislators in greater honor than our physicians. For no doctor could save us from death, but a trainer might render us fit for an Olympian victory. Perhaps your doctors promised to make you immortal, which I should not think a benefit if you were never to be well. Art cannot be improvised under pressure. The man with a hole in his shoe is not forthwith a cobbler, much less does a landsman become a pilot whenever he is seasick. Imagine yourself, who I suspect are no sailor, appointed to command a trireme in a storm, or in a fog, or in the thick of the battle of Salamis, not knowing the draft of your vessel, or the position of the rocks, or the tactics of the enemy, or even the words of command or with which hand to steer, but asking yourself what death to expect, while all hands waited on you for direction. And I think your anxiety and suspense in such a nightmare, and the confusion and agony with which you would implore every god or the most humble fellow creature to relieve you of that task, though the fate of only one trireme was at stake, would be as nothing to the anguish which must assail the heart of an ignorant man voting in a moment of danger upon the government of his country. The Stranger 
no ignorant man among us, where the leaders are often ignorant, feels the least compunction in such a case, but only irritation and ill will towards every other landlubber who, in equal ignorance, insists on giving different orders, and each attributes the general confusion to the fact that his own voice was not heeded in time. Nevertheless, we exist, and life among us is, in many ways, safer, freer, more comfortable, and more entertaining than it was in your model cities, with their divine founders and lawgivers. There is an automatism in nature, Socrates, more fruitful than reason. Human beings, in all their dynamic relations, are bodies, although when they talk to themselves, they may think they are minds. All their vital organs are unconscious and hereditary, and by instinct and imitation, without understanding, they learn to eat, to breed, to talk, and to govern. Every sturdy race stews its homemade dishes, to which its stomach is hardened, and which it fondly relishes as incomparably the best. Few cooks anywhere are inventive, a fact which saves many lives. And our traditional government, like our home religion, though there is no science in it, is not too poisonous. The sun rises in spite of it, and our children have red cheeks. Socrates. The wild beasts, too, thrive on that principle. Nature has supplied them with all sorts of curious and complicated organs which mature in their season and insist on performing their unintended functions. Your institutions seem to be organs of that sort, for in following fashion or in trying private experiments, you apparently obey some spontaneous instinct or some balance of secret forces and leave the issue to fortune. But the privilege of human reason, where reason exists, is to turn us into philosophers by teaching us to survey our destiny and to institute within its bounds the pursuit of perfection. The Stranger Perhaps the spirit in us, like that of some half-tamed beast, is not quite reconciled with its humanity. We prefer not to know our destiny and not to have any perfection set before us which we are not free to elude. Beneath what may seem to you our blind experiments in government, that we count heads as if we paid out money by weight, without asking whether it was gold or silver, I think there is a profound instinct of freedom. Society itself is an accident to the spirit, and if society in any of its forms is to be justified morally, it must be justified at the bar of the individual conscience. In putting everything to a vote, we are not so much supposing that the majority must be right as we are acknowledging, even at the risk of material disaster, the indefeasible right of each soul to determine its allegiances. Socrates, eloquence by venting the feelings sometimes clears the mind. Would you now be able, I wonder, to answer a simple question which I asked you at the beginning? Does right government mean good government? The stranger, no. I see now that there is a difference. Legitimacy in a government depends on the origin of its authority. Excellence depends on its fruits. Socrates, then right government, resting as your oracle has it on the will of the governed, may be bad government. The stranger, of course, nothing is commoner, especially when passions run high and nations or individuals attempt the impossible. Socrates, you mean, for instance, that if an assembly with a great shout voted that every citizen should receive a large dole from the public treasury, that measure would accurately express their living desires, and the free choice of every bosom, yet it might bring no good if at that moment the treasury was empty. 
the stranger. Evidently. But in that case, at least, the illusion would be short-lived. The bubbles we pursue in love or ambition often take longer to burst. Socrates, and would you say that these bubbles, even when they lead you so long astray, are the right principles of action, and that you ought to follow them? The stranger, I am at a loss how to reply. If I say no, I condemn all life. If I say yes, I sanction every folly. Socrates, life, my good friend, is hard for you to understand because you are still living. Here we understand it. Not every passion pursues a bubble. Not every treasury is empty. But living impulse, born as it needs must be on its own wings, cannot distinguish. It cannot foresee the end, so as to push on where success is promised and halt in time where it is denied. Experience arrives too late for each of us and the young, though more or less fortunate in disposition, are never born any wiser. But by instruction, experience may be transmitted. A father may train his son. The gods, too, are merciful and send down precepts and inspirations. And the legislator, if we live in a civilized state, has instituted games and festivals and exercises by which youth can be molded and turned towards such ambitions as may be satisfied with innocence. Life to this extent becomes an art and wisdom a tradition. The living cannot live well unless the dead govern them. Ah, if the Athenians, after dismissing me from their midst in a manner which, whether a benefit to them or not, was certainly a great advantage to me, had wisely decided to disenfranchise themselves in a body and, at every election, to ask the shade of Socrates alone to decide, and had counted only my single vote. Athens, I say, would still be standing, more beautiful in her simplicity than Pericles ever made her with his brand new marbles, and richer in true poets and true philosophers than she ever was in sophists and comedians. But the living, twittering on the green bough, despise the wisdom of the dead, which might insinuate something immortal into them and keep them from wholly dying. The Stranger Immortality, Socrates, although people often declaim about it, is a thing for which the truly living do not care. They wish, indeed, to go on living, because they are wound up to go, and any accident which threatens to stop them short is odious to them. But that all their habits and thoughts should lapse successively and yield to something new, or to a timely silence which, being absolute, will never be perceived, does not disturb them. Such, they know by instinct, is the nature of existence. For this reason, they allow only living desires to count in action, however frivolous or fatal those desires may be. They wish to live, and not merely not to die. Your shade in its wisdom, annulling their wills and stopping their bawling mouths, would have seemed to them the most horrible of ghostly tyrants, and worse than the laws of the Medes and Persians, or an infallible pope and you would have preserved your austere Athens to no purpose by your eternal decrees, because the living would have fled from it and left it empty. It is not right to impose old loves on a young soul or ancient justice on a new society. No tyranny is worse than that of a belated or fanatical conscience, oppressing a world it does not understand in the name of another world which is non-existent. Socrates, how often have I heard speeches like that from the clever men who filled the living Athens, or, since living and dying seem to be identical, the dying Athens of my day. A small question, however, troubled me in the midst of your eloquence. Imagine, 
as a mere hypothesis that the great king, or my shade, interrupted the orgies or the stargazing in which, as they say, we are habitually plunged, and that we commanded a useful bridge to be built, or unjust tax-gatherers to be punished, or temples and groves to be renewed and beautified or that by resisting the desire of the people for largesses in their holiday moods, we were actually able to distribute doles to them in some year of famine, or by our foresight in fostering agriculture had prevented their distress. Would all these acts of ours have been wrong and tyrannical, because done on our own initiative and not at the people's bidding? The Stranger I confess that, practically, it would make little difference who exercised the right of legislation, if, in any case, the laws and the spirit of the government were to be the same. But experience has taught us that the great king and the assembled people would not pass the same laws or govern in the same interests. Socrates, your prejudice against the great king or against my shade as perpetual archon is then not absolute. You might consent to be governed by us if you thought us likely to govern well. But you fear that our thoughts might be too kingly or too ghostly and might divert your energies to royal or fantastic ends, despising your homely needs. The Stranger Yes, that is what we fear. Socrates In such measure, however, as we actually governed well, would you not think us tyrants or our government illegitimate? The stranger. No doubt in that case you would be accepted without credentials. In fact, if your government was half decent, people would soon overflow with loyalty to you and would build statues or altars in your honor. Socrates. Then good government is always right government. The stranger. That seems to follow from your argument but I am not convinced. Compulsion is degrading in itself, and there is an intrinsic dignity in freedom. Socrates, is there an intrinsic dignity in the freedom of a blind man when the degrading restraint exercised by the dog or the child leading him is removed, and he walks over a precipice? The stranger, yes, if he is weary of being blind and of being led, and prefers to commit suicide. Socrates, the dignity which you attribute to suicide would disappear, I suppose, if the moment the man felt himself falling through the void, he repented and gave a shriek of terror and despair. The Stranger, I assume, of course, that he knows his own mind. Socrates, ah, that is an important condition a most important condition. And there are other things that perhaps he would need to know if the dignity of his freedom was to be preserved. Suppose that at the time of his suicide, Asclepius, or some other healer of men, was approaching with a salve which applied to the eyes would have restored them to sight. In killing himself just then, would he not be a victim of tragic ignorance acting contrary to his true desires. The stranger, how can you expect anyone to adjust his action to what lies beyond his ken? Socrates, how indeed? What freedom can there be in the helpless solitude of ignorance? What autonomy in being driven this way and that, by wishes without self-knowledge? It is knowledge and knowledge only that may rule by divine right no matter who possesses that knowledge, and, possessing it, gives the word of command. Without knowledge, there is no authority in the will, either over itself or over others, but only violence and madness. And this knowledge necessary to virtue and to the right to will looks in two directions. First, into the soul, to disentangle her true nature, and discern the pursuits in which her innate powers might be liberated and developed. And then again into the world, to discover the opportunities, 
the aids, and the dangers which the soul must count upon in the exercise of her freedom. And with this, the consequence of your patient explanations, I think I may venture to interpret that oracle which at first seemed so obscure. If the god had spoken in prose, without wishing to be oracular, he would have said that there was no right government except good government. That good government is that which benefits the governed. That the good of the governed is determined not by their topmost wishes or their ruling passions, but by their hidden nature and their real opportunity. And that only knowledge, discovering this hidden nature and these real opportunities, and speaking in their name, has a right to rule in the state or in the private conscience. I will not ask you today whether you agree with these conclusions, for I perceive that your mind is agitated, and you may prefer to reserve your decision. Another day we will renew the argument. The Stranger When I saw again, after our last conversation, the blue vault, under which we mortals think that we live, though it is but our optical illusion. Your doctrine itself assumed a new perspective in my memory. In these unframed spaces, every spirit shines by its own light. But there, an oblique external illumination casts everything into violent light and shadow, making a painted patchwork of the world and hiding the profound labor going on patiently beneath. Why should nature have endowed her creatures with senses so strangely caricaturing and foreshortening the facts? Doubtless, because there is not time or strength in the soul, while yet alive, to conceive all things justly, but only to catch such glimpses of them as may suffice to lend a name to her pleasures and sorrows, and help her to sketch the outlines of her destiny. That which happens to the eye in the presence of bodies happens on earth to the understanding in the presence of alien thoughts. These we must distort, if we do not altogether neglect them. Yet this very neglect or distortion is a speaking picture of our condition. We are militant souls, fighting in the stifling armor of the body, stunned and bleeding by many a wound. How should we do more than occasionally spy an enemy or whisper to a friend? In you, Socrates, I have always recognized the truest and greatest of friends, though you knew nothing of it. But the best physician is not always able to cure nor the most merciful deity to save. The disease is rooted in nature. So on this occasion you had plainly shown that government was right only when beneficent, and that good self-government must rest on self-knowledge. But it seemed to me, looking at things again in the violent light of day, that in discovering his own nature and his opportunities, a man was himself the best explorer, and each nation the best judge of its own case. So that the control of action by personal impulse or by popular vote might be the wisest after all. Any external authority would be sure to rule in some abstract interest and to sail by an obsolete chart. All precepts inspired by past experience are, in one sense, impertinent. They assume that in the virgin rock of futurity there are no veins unworked and no glint of anything perhaps more precious than gold. Socrates, you confirm a story I once heard concerning the firmament of your world, that it was an eggshell within which the soul already quickened was not yet hatched. Her true life would begin when the shell was shattered and she found herself in the open. That warm, close universe, with its flashes of phosphorescence, which you call day, has been the womb of all of us, 
let us preserve a grateful piety towards our unconscious parent. You enjoy the singular privilege of partly anticipating your birth by putting your callow head now and then out of the shell and taking a peep at eternity. But you do well to draw back again quickly in order to go on growing in the dreamful safety of your nest and blindly strengthening your eyes and feathers. You are not ready yet for the air, and this last embryonic interval of yours seems to have been particularly fruitful. You come back in a flutter of rich impulses and divinations, such as embryos should have. But you know the laws of my republic in regard to every new birth, no matter how exalted its parentage. It must be submitted to the magistrate for inspection, and unless found healthy and perfect, it must be unflinchingly put out of the way. It would not be merciful to a monster to allow it to live, or merciful to the commonwealth to suffer monsters to dwell in it. Let us then examine your offspring together, and may it stand the test. The Stranger You need not hesitate on my account to condemn it. I feel no great affection or even pity for this doctrine of democracy, which came to me not as my own child, nor even as a foundling left at my door, but as a sort of figment of words or obsession in a dream. And if you blow on the phantom and prove it a gas baby, you leave me no poorer and more at ease. Socrates, let us inspect it without prejudice, Sometimes the greatest discoveries wear at first a disquieting or nebulous form. Did not people call me a sophist, and was it not out of sophistry that I plucked the unshakable humility of my wisdom? You say, then, that external authority is ill-fitted to discern the good, which is more likely to be revealed by the voice of personal impulse, or of the whole people casting their votes. In respect to impulse, you might point, for instance, to the young of man and the other mammals, who instinctively save their lives by taking the breast which the mother, in a smiling torpor, is happy to give them, whereas if a conclave of astrologers, never having noticed such lowly things, had been summoned to devise the right food for infants, not one of those learned men would ever have suggested a method so strangely elaborate and, as they would have said, so disgusting as being suckled at the breast. But if one of them was a follower of Thales, he might have urged that water, being the substance of all things, was undoubtedly in its pure state the most invigorating and the safest nourishment for a tender life. And another might suggest that a little wine the gift of the infant, Bacchus, is the surest cause of warmth and movement in the system, and of inspiration in the mind. A third might have argued that, life being something divine and supernatural, it is best sustained if the wine is mixed with honey, because then it is called nectar, and is the drink of the gods. Another might have prescribed a diet of fresh grass, saying that grass is the stay of every strong and blameless animal, such as the horse and the cow, and that all other foods are the mad contrivance of luxury and of ferocity and a sure cause of disease. Yet another, a logician, might have proved that only solids can enlarge solids, so that for the right growth of a child's body, body being a solid by definition, all liquids were superfluous. While a rival member of the same school of thought, admitting that only like can produce like, might have declared it absurd to expect that life should be sustained upon dead substances, and would have commanded all infants to be fed on nothing but gnats, flies, worms, beetles, and caterpillars, to be swallowed alive. Meantime, after all these sages, and those who listened to them, 
had died childless, the vulgar who had ignorantly followed their instinct would have preserved mankind from extinction and repeopled the earth. The stranger, how comes it, Socrates, that you are found today making merry at the expense of knowledge? Socrates, is it knowledge not to know that milk is for babies? The childish instinct to cry disconsolately until given a suck is a philosophical instinct. It demands something which is probably obtainable and which, when obtained, will prove pleasant and wholesome. Philosophy could do no better. Now, may I presume that the instincts which you regard as safe guides in government are all instincts of this wise kind, playing into the hands of nature, finding what they seek, and thriving upon it? The Stranger the natural sanction of instinct is seldom immediate. What I mean is only that an impulse at least points to some satisfaction, whether obtainable or not, so that every impulse has an initial right to be given a trial, and every vote a right to be counted. Socrates, each of those astrologers in council, for instance, would have a right to make trial of his method at least on his own children. The stranger. Your example is grotesque, because everybody knows what young children require. But if the case were novel and experience had not proved the point ad nauseum, it would be right for every man to try the method which seemed to him best. Socrates. So long as men are ignorant, their conduct, according to your principles, is always right and they must have their way? Their folly becomes folly only when they discover it to be so, and only death or disaster can rightly prevent them from continuing in the courses which, up to that fatal moment, have been perfectly right? The Stranger No doubt when a man is disappointed at the results of his action, he may say he has made a mistake, and may call that action wrong but it hardly follows that it was wrong to have made the experiment, or even to make it again, if the circumstances seem more favorable. And in any case, he remains the judge of his own error, and the corrected course which he should steer in future is always that which his private instinct, enlightened by his experience, now prompts him to choose. Socrates, and meanwhile, in those political actions which men can execute only in common, how is the right course determined? For instance, if there was only one child, the king's son and heir, to be nursed by all those astrologers, how would you decide on which of their scientific foods the young prince should be fed? The stranger. There would be a ballot in which each doctor, after recommending his own nostrum, would indicate his second choice, and the voting would be continued until everyone being exhausted by fatigue and sleeplessness, a majority was obtained in despair for no matter what compromise. And on that expert recipe, the hope of the nation would be brought up. Socrates, I am lost in admiration at the wisdom of your procedure. In Hellas we made a trial of many forms of government of all, as we fondly thought, that human ingenuity could devise. But we underestimated the fertility of lime. How I regret that before framing my ideal republic I could not have seen your system at work. For there are occasions on which, in my ignorance, I cannot imagine how you would apply your principles. For instance, some monster, for time breeds monsters too, should be born among you. And if one day Briarius should enter your assembly and raise his hundred hands at once, or if Hydra should shriek a thousand discordant opinions out of her thousand mouths, would he or she count for one citizen according to your laws, or for a hundred, or a thousand? The Stranger The case is less mythical than it sounds, 
and we actually have something of the sort in our press and our political parties. But no practical difficulty arises, because our monsters are not separate beings, but are composed of men and women packed closely together and compelled to move in unison. And each of these Trojan horses, as it were, which fight all our battles for us, counts for as many votes as it carries individuals tucked under its hide. Socrates, ah, yes, your citizen is your only sovereign, and all his thoughts and motions are dictated to him by some impersonal organism, to which he is subject he knows not why. But what are the limits of your citizenship? Does good husbandry, according to your traditions, consider the interests of all the ants in the anthills of your country, lest your husbandmen, certainly far fewer than the ants in number, should unjustly drive the plow through these anthills, trampling on the interests and passions of the majority. Do not reply too hastily, for on second thoughts I am confident you would not allow the small stature or the black color of ants to prejudice you against their rights as living creatures. And the accident that they are too busy at home to come and vote in the Agora ought not to count against them. For I suppose the interests of children and sick people and old men who are not able to jostle their way to the voting booths are not neglected in your just democracy. But your chief magistrate or high priest or some vestal virgin especially appointed doubtless rises solemnly in your assembly amid a general hush, and casts a vote in their name. The stranger. We are not pious. Nothing of the sort ever enters our heads. Socrates. That seems very strange to me when I consider the principle which you say governs your politics. But there is another class, so very numerous and important, that I am sure your legislators must have found a means of counting their votes although there may be some material difficulty in doing so. I mean the dead. For who can have a greater stake in a country than its founders, whose whole soul and single hope was devoted to establishing it, that it might last and be true to their thought forever, or than the soldiers who in many wars have successfully given their lives to preserve it? Surely at every meeting of your assembly their votes are counted first, which they once cast so solemnly and sincerely, and at so great a sacrifice to themselves for your sake, and their veto is interposed beforehand against any rash measure that might undo their labors, stultify their hopes, and banish their spirit from the house which they built and loved. The Stranger No, the dead have no vote among us. On the contrary, we think they have too much influence as it is without voting, because they have bequeathed institutions to us which encumber our playground and are not to our liking. And the inertia which these institutions oppose to our fresh desires seems to us a hateful force, which we call the dead hand. Socrates do you mean that every young rascal who knows nothing of the origin and laws of his country and has never done anything in it but be born may cast a vote, or that foreigners fleeing from famine or seeking by trade to enrich themselves privately, although in their hearts they may be sworn enemies to the land that receives them, may cast a vote also, but that the founders and defenders of it are not suffered to make their voices heard because they happen to be dead? I, who am dead myself, see a great injustice in that. But let us return to the living. I suppose when the inhabitants of some town or quarter wish to rebuild their temple or to found a new one, they gather together to draw up the plans. And when, in response to their living desires or to those of a majority, they have chosen the site, selected the materials, designed the structure, and estimated the cost, 
they depute to one of their own number, as nearly an average man as possible, to carry out the project. After six months or a year, they do not forget to come together again, to revise the plans and make sure that the site first chosen is still convenient, and the work done so far is still expressive of the popular taste. And lest the architect formerly appointed may have been too much absorbed in his official function, and may have acquired autocratic habits and notions of architectural art not drawn from popular feeling, they hasten to revoke his commission and to appoint a new architect, more in sympathy with the life of the moment, and not tempted to execute any work which the assembled people, by a divine inspiration, have not first conceived in idea. The Stranger If the architect was not more fertile in invention and resourceful in methods than is the average citizen, why should he be distinguished by that title at all? Socrates, that is a question I meant to ask you, and I expected you to reply, in the name of your friends, that they were all equally skillful architects and physicians and generals, and that each took on each of these titles when he happened to be exercising that particular art. Moreover, that special masters in any art were required only in ill-governed states, where the people were not perfectly educated, but that in a model state, all human undertakings would be executed as the ants and the bees build their cities. For all, or nearly all, of them are builders, unanimous without control, and a common impulse joins them in labors, which prove providentially to be harmonious. So I seem to see the artists in your happy society adding each his niche to the sculptured hive, and making it rich by a divine and unconscious cooperation. The spirit in them marshals them without words. Alas, we poor Athenians would practice the arts only through rare and exceptional masters, not being inspired, as you all are today, to execute the most difficult works spontaneously and without instruction. But I am letting my enthusiasm run away with me, when I ought rather to be asking you to describe your principles in practice. If, for instance, some enemy attacks you and you find yourselves at war, I suppose you seize the weapons which you have at hand, provided by your private love of contrivances, or of the chase, and rush with one accord upon that enemy, routing him easily at the first onset by your common ardor and instinctive tactics. The Stranger No, that is the method of wolves or of savage tribes. In our states, which are of enormous extent and population, the generals and other officers are designated beforehand and trained by long study and exercises in time of peace. And our arsenals are provided with all kinds of engines of war, with artisans skillful in making and managing them, and even our common soldiers, if they are not to go like sheep to the slaughter, must undergo a long discipline at home before they are ever sent into the battle, in which they must endure all sorts of dangers and hardships blindly, not seeing the enemy and trusting to the word and art of their superiors for every movement and every hope. Socrates, I am astonished. How can it be that, having such excellent methods of government, you do not apply them to the principal function of your government, which is the protection of your lives? But perhaps war is too rough a business for such noble principles to work in. They may apply only to higher things. If, for example, you are not merely building a temple, but giving a name to the god that is to be worshipped there, I suppose your people gather in an assembly and elect their god and by a common inspiration compose the fable that is to be religiously associated with his name, as well as the rites with which, on pain of disaster, he shall be honored. And the form the sculptor shall give to his image. And when all this has been settled by vote, I suppose you vote on a still more important function and decide it by a majority. I mean, what benefits this God shall bestow on you and whether he shall protect you from drought or from pestilence, or shall inspire you with martial ardor, or with ravishing music, 
or shall make you rich, or beautiful, or immortal, or whatever it be that you, the majority of you, happen most to desire. The Stranger I suspect you are laughing at us, but in all seriousness that is very much how we proceed in matters of religion. For deities of the earth and sea, for stories of wonders, for local shrines or images black with age, whose origin is lost in antiquity, we have scant respect. But our prophets and philosophers discuss angrily what ought to be the nature of God, whom each defines according to his own preferences, and few of them hesitate to demolish old temples and old notions of the gods, or even to deny their existence, and to substitute the idea which most flatters the mood of the age, and call this new idea the only true God. And even if we do not vote openly for one God or another to preside over us, yet by an insensible movement of public opinion, we abandon the gods we dislike, for others that we like better. And we never rest until we have adopted one that lays on us no commandment, not to our own mind, and promises us all we wish. Socrates, and when you have found such an amiable God, and abolished all those who are dangerous, I suppose calamities cease among you. Passion and madness no longer distract any mind. There are no more floods, earthquakes, pestilences, or wars, and a serene happiness reigns in your hearts and in your cities. The stranger. Not at all. Human destiny remains precisely as before, save that religion has a smaller part in it, turns to private doubts or fancies, or vanishes altogether. Socrates. Those who worship the statuses of the gods rather than the gods themselves are called idolaters, are they not? The stranger. Yes. Socrates. And if a man worshipped an image of some god in his own mind, rather than the power which actually controls his destiny, he would be worshipping an idol? The stranger. The principle would be the same, but usage among us applies the word idol to the products of sculpture, not to those of poetry. Socrates. Then, in principle, your prophets and philosophers are sheer idolaters. The stranger. They would be if they took their religion seriously, as you did yours in the old days. But their religion has nothing to do with their business or politics, or with their practical estimation of good or evil fortunes. It is merely the solace of their dreamful hours. People now are hardly aware that the object of continual piety and studious reverence in the most ancient religions was the power that actually and hourly rules over men, whatever may be its nature or its contempt for human interests. The very power that still rules the world without human suffrage. This real power we make the object of science and of profitable art, but not of what we now call religion. Socrates, but at least in respect to that other luxurious religion of theirs, which you think is in principle mere idolatry. Your friends apply their fine theory of government by the will of the government, deputing some chosen god to legislate for them according to their own wishes. Do they apply the same theory, I wonder, in that humbler region to which religion was addressed of old, the region of our daily and national fortunes? Do they apply it, for instance, to the household, do your little boys and girls, after playing in the street together, vote to become brothers and sisters and elect a father and mother? You smile as if my question were ironical, but I assure you I am in earnest and think it a momentous question, for if the father and the mother do not hold their office by the consent of their children and have not become their father and mother in obedience to the children's will, then, according to your principles of government, all parental authority is usurped, and no parent's command or control is legitimate. 
and it was an act of selfish and outrageous tyranny on the part of the father and mother to beget a helpless child and bring him up by force in their own family, when, very likely, had he been consulted, he would have chosen different parents and a finer home. I hardly know what to admire most, whether the simplicity of your principles or the excellence of the society that would arise if they could be thoroughly applied. After abolishing the old gods, which can be done with a breath, you will doubtless abolish the ridiculous old methods of animal generation and establish something more decent, and by a majority vote, you will reform the configuration and climate of the earth and decide what shall have been the history of your country and what shall be its future language and arts. And you will begin, I hope, by voting yourselves a much greater intelligence than that with which chance has endowed you. The Stranger I blush, Socrates, at the foolishness and impiety of the views which I might almost have adopted if your voice of warning had not reached me in time. Socrates There is nothing surprising to me in the influence exercised over mankind by those who flatter it with eloquence. There were sophists in my day, too, I suspect that the fundamental order of human life is settled for you now, as it was for us then, independently of pert opinion, by nature and fortune and divine decrees, sophistry itself being but headiness in ill-bred mortals, when Apollo has withdrawn to another part of the heavens. I think, too, that right conscience in a natural creature can be nothing but self-knowledge by which the man discovers his own nature and the good on which it is set, so that the margin of free choice and initiative for a man of understanding is exceedingly narrow and grows narrower as the field of his competence grows wider and his science clearer, all art being but nature enlightened and directed upon its natural good. But doubtless your friends on earth are masters of magic, and are inspired with an infused wisdom, which was always denied me. You will do well to return to them with my doubts fresh in mind, and after listening to the weighty consideration which they will doubtless invoke in support of their opinions, you will be able to form your own at leisure. For it would be of little profit to have been saved from one error if, under my blind guidance, you fell into another. If you'd like to hear more of Dialogues in Limbo by George Santiano, just search Audible or iTunes or Amazon for the Kindle and print editions. I'll put links in the episode description. And again, please buy the books, follow, subscribe, give five stars, or let me know in any way that you enjoyed your trip.